I would like to uh, welcome all of you who are brand new. We'd like to welcome and say hi to those of you who are watching us online. And um, I want to start by asking you a simple question. If I came up to you at the end of the service and I said, I need you to speak for me next week, but I need to know what the topic's going to be, what topic would you pick? What topic would you pick that would resonate with the most people? You know, regardless of where they've been and where they are right now in life, what, pick, what topic would you pick? I have been speaking now um, as a pastor for 30 years. I've been preaching sermons. Thank you. One person went, woo. Uh, I've been doing it for 30 years, which if you do the math, it means I've been preaching since I was six. And um, after all of the topics I've ever uh, picked and then preached on, Bible passages and all of that, hands down, the most universal issue that people struggle with, regardless of age or gender, is the issue of stress and exhaustion. Whether you're an elementary kid or you're elderly, that is an issue that you're going to wrestle with. Now, I attribute this to two things. Number one, life is hard, period. Life is hard. Miguel de Unamuna, the Spanish philosopher, said uh, there is a tragic sense of life that, we, that overcomes all of us. And what happens is that living life with optimism is an act of courage. Now, but you throw on top of that the rapid changes in technology that people are constantly facing, and you have a recipe for stress and exhaustion. Just think of all of the changes in technology that have occurred in your lifetime. Think of the phone that you used to use. How many of you remember using this phone? Take a look. Okay, Braylon, call your mama. Pick up the phone and call me. No, he's dialing first, like you do on your phone. And he's going to pick it up. Wait, two, two, four, three, eight. Where's the zero? There, you got it. <laughs> Braylon's got it. Well, I knew how to do it. I just didn't know what number. Hello? It doesn't work. It just goes... <laughs> <laughs> How many of you raise your hand if you've never used a rotary phone to call someone? Look around. Look around. I mean, that's, that is amazing to me. Think of all the rapid changes that have occurred. Now, forget the changes of like uh, a rotary phone to a cell phone. Think of artificial intelligence. Think of what artificial intelligence is used for right now. Imagine what's going to happen over the next 100 years and the way lives are going to be changed. You match technology with unprecedented workloads financial pressures, changes in society and culture, and throw on top of that just trying to get your kid to soccer practice with both shin guards, that's stress and exhaustion. That's a recipe for that. That's why I was taken back a few years ago when I was speaking on the topic of stress. I shared a few verses and some challenging thoughts that, that people may not have thought about before. And then I, to drive it home, I read my all-time favorite quote, by a spiritual writer named Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby said, unlike people, God never piles on more than someone can handle. God never overbooks people. God never drives servants to the point of exhaustion. God never burns people out. God never gives people tasks that are beyond the strength or ability he provides. I thought it was a helpful sermon. People thought it was very encouraging. I felt that Blackaby's quote drove the point home, and then later that week when it was posted online, a friend of mine who has a daughter that has a terminal disease, 
wrote this comment. Thank you for your sermon, Brian. I found it very encouraging and helpful. But that guy you quoted who said, God never gives people tasks that are beyond the strength or ability he provides has probably never had to plan the funeral for one of his kids. I was devastated. I was devastated that you took the quote that way. Because it's a good quote. Because Blackaby is talking about our inability to say no and overcommitting ourselves. And so we don't have the energy and the ability to be available and to pour ourselves into people's lives, she took it as a general quote about the way life works. Now, it's not an accident that she took it that way. She took it that way because Christians love throwing around a statement that loosely comes from a verse in the Bible. And that statement is, and we've all heard this before, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's like for 21st century Christians the cornerstone piece of their theology, of their understanding of the way life works. I'm now a Christian. I now have, I have an insurance statement that basically tells me I'm never going to face anything that I can't handle. Just think of the Christians that have told you this or how you have told that to Christians. And let's just admit up front, they're always doing this in a spirit of encouragement. They're trying to encourage us, right? Maybe you're going to the doctor to get news about a biopsy or your kid is having learning difficulties, or you've had a rough patch in your marriage, when a Christian says, remember, God will never give you more than you can handle, they're trying to encourage you. But how can something be encouraging if it's not true? We're starting this new series today called Straight Out of Context. Now, obviously, the name is a play on the rap group NWA's album, Straight Out of Compton, You probably have seen memes uh, based on this album. Here's one that was made after Tom Brady got caught deflating footballs. uh, Straight out of air. Love that one. Um, I thought this one was pretty funny about the 2016 elections. Straight out of options. Um, (laughs) Ooh, it's getting political, right? Um, This one I thought was just a wee bit too much. Straight out of Nazareth, right? And those of you who are old enough to remember seeing the movie Alien, I love this one, straight out of your chest, right? I love that one. Now, straight out of context, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at cliche Christian statements that are meant to be helpful, but because those verses are taken out of context, they actually end up doing more harm than good. Now, the reason we're doing this is when you become a Christian, one of the skills that you have to develop is understanding the Bible. Learning how to understand the Bible is a skill every Christian needs to learn. That's because, as one of my favorite professors used to say, God has spoken and he expects to be understood. God has spoken through his word and he expects to be understood. In fact, there are a number of warnings in the Bible. If you've, have you read these warnings? about basically making the Bible say whatever you want to do by taking it out of context. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, doctrine is like a Bible word, which is simply is a description of sermons or Bible studies or discussions or answers. When someone asks you a question about the Bible and you give them an answer you're teaching them doctrine, what the Bible says about certain things. And that we, we have to be careful about. One of my jobs, the Bible says, 
is to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that I can encourage others by sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it. And so my goal is to equip you to do the same, to be able with confidence to say, this is what the Bible says, and also with confidence, this is what the Bible does not say whenever you hear something like that. And that's because the Apostle Paul warned in 2 Timothy 4, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will make images on Instagram of verses of the Bible taken out of context that sound inspirational. No, that's not what it says. They will, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Or, as my professor used to say, God has spoken and he expects to be understood. Okay, so let's look at this statement. God will never give you more than you can handle. That statement, and by the way, please uh, grab your sermon, uh, the, the, the package of material we give you. Um, about all the stuff going on in the church, there's an there's a insert in there where you can grab that and uh, take notes. Please, please do that as we're going through this. That statement comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And that verse says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's a pretty cool verse. I like that verse. That's an encouraging verse. But what is that scripture saying in context? Now, listen. Whenever you're trying to understand what the Bible says in context, there are three things that I want you to do, okay? I want you to write these down. Number one, read the whole book start to finish. Read the whole book start to finish. You wouldn't go to Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and crib a little line of a quote and pull it out and say, this is what he's saying about this particular issue. You would need to read the book. And the Bible is literature just like any other book, it just happens to be inspired literature. So we have to read it from beginning to end. Number two, after you've read it beginning to end, I want you to ask the question, what did this mean to them? You're, you're never going to know what the Bible says to you until you know what it meant to them. And so just remember from your basic high school English class, your basic high school literature class where they teach you who, what, when, where, and why, Who's writing this? What prompted this? Where are they writing this? When are they writing this? Why are they writing this? And that will help you understand what it meant to them. But finally then ask, what does this mean for me today in my life? Now, the first thing we notice when we look at 1 Corinthians where this verse occurs is that 1 Corinthians actually is a letter written from a church leader called the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in a Greek town called Corinth that was on an isthmus. Isthmus? Isth? Is, cut me out. Come on, don't leave me up here hanging. Isthmus? It was on a landmass that looked like an island that was still connected. Anyway, so, okay. So this town, Corinth, here's the town of Corinth. In the middle of the town... Um, is the temple of the Greek god Apollo, and then up behind it is a mountain called the Acrocorinth. Because it was so close to water on each side where the, where the city was, it was sort of like, think of the Panama Canal. 
That's what, that was the Greek version of the Panama Canal. Uh, people would show up in their boats and they would walk into Corinth. At the top of the mountain, at the Acro Corinth, this mountain, there was a temple where there would be temple prostitutes. Greek historian Strabo said that there were thousands of prostitutes, which is an exaggeration. There couldn't, there's not even space for thousands of prostitutes up there. He was simply saying, dude, this is a lot like Vegas. This is a lot like Vegas. Okay, so Paul starts a church there, and when he left to go start another church in another location, things go haywire. People wrote him a letter then, and they asked him a bunch of questions. 1 Corinthians is simply a letter to respond to all of the questions that they had. In chapter 8, in the middle of that letter, it says, now about food, sacrifice to idols. I want to give you a hypothetical situation, okay? And you're going to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, okay? I want you to imagine that there is a cult in Collegeville. When our church first started, they called us a cult. Everyone, seriously, they, they called us a cult. And uh, I didn't realize having the last name Jones... Not a good thing. You know, Jim Jones. I've got some special grape juice for you people. Okay, all right. Anyway, so I want you to imagine there's, an, a, there's a cult in Collegeville, and in their temple services, they worship Satan. And they have sex with one another in the church services. And on top of that, if that wasn't crazy enough, they sacrifice idols, meat, or they sacrifice animals to these idols as a form of worship to Apollo and different deities. But this cult likes to make money. So after the animal has been slaughtered and offered up to the deity, the cult then sends some people over to take a big wagon of meat over to Wegmans. And then the meat department sets up a special section that says, meat sacrificed to Satan. Okay? Now, here's the question. Raise your hands if you definitely would not buy that meat and give it and feed it to your family. Raise your hands. You're like, no way, not doing it. Okay, good. Now, raise your hand if you would have absolutely no problem buying that meat and eating it. Raise your hand. Come on, do we see any hands? No hands. I see one, one hand over here. Obviously, we have a Satanist in our church today. Okay, great. Just kidding. Anyway. Now, would it make a difference for those of you who said, no way, I'm not going to eat that meat, if I told you that the meat was 50% cheaper than all of the other meat there? That's a very loose equivalent to what was happening in the city of Corinth in the church there. A lot of the Christians were poor. The meat that was sacrificed to the idols, turned around and brought to the market, was cheaper And so they started asking the Apostle Paul questions. If we eat this stuff, are we going to get possessed by Satan and our head's going to turn around? And, you know, 360 degrees, what's going to happen when we eat this stuff? A lot of our people have started to eat this stuff, and there are a lot of people in the church who are like, you can't do that. That's wrong. It's morally wrong to take something that was dedicated to an idol, to another deity, and then to eat it as Christians. We're to step out from the world. We're to be different. And so they asked him this question, and he fired off the letter, and Paul's answer is this. It's up to you. It's really, it's up to you. It's your choice. 
It's just meat. If you think it's bad, don't eat it. If you think it's okay, then go ahead and buy it. Just keep in mind that you have friends who are really convinced that eating meat sacrificed to idol is wrong, so don't flaunt it in their face. Don't invite them over to lunch, to lunch after church and say, hey, we'd love to have you. you. Jane and Bill, we, we haven't gotten together with you in a long time. Come on over. You're in the middle of a meal. You had salad, and you, you're laying down everything. And right in the middle of the ribeye, after they've poured A1 steak sauce all over it, and they're chomping down about halfway through a ribeye, you look over and say, and by the way, you know that was sacrificed to demons, right? And then they vomit right on their table because... They have a strongly held position that that is morally wrong. And so the Apostle Paul says, if you want to eat meat sacrificed to idol, fine, go ahead and do it. Just don't do it in the presence of or to cause someone that is a fellow believer consternation. Don't do it that way. This is a concept called Christian liberty, which basically means when there's an issue that, the, that Christians disagree on, that's not covered in the Bible, that's not talked about in the Bible, use your best judgment. Just don't hurt your fellow Christian. So there's this phrase that in churches like ours, independent Christian churches, uh, for those of you who don't know, we're part of a larger fellowship of churches, one of the fastest growing fellowship of churches in the country. In our fellowship alone, there are more large churches like ours than represented than in any other group in the country. We're not just this idle group that just started. We're part of of a larger group. As a part of our larger group, because we bring people in from such diverse backgrounds, like people will come in, we're married. I am Catholic, and she's a devout Southern Baptist. And I'm like, how did that happen? But anyway, it happens, right? So our church is a, a, uh, for people like that, it's a compromise, People from no backgrounds and Jewish backgrounds and different religions, we bring them all. So what, how, do we, how do you do church with a diverse background? And a simple phrase that we use is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. In essentials, God, Jesus, Bible, heaven, hell, Holy Spirit, all that kind of stuff, Everyone needs to agree, and we're not going to budge on that. But in non-essentials, you have the liberty to make the decision on your own. But don't use your liberty, the Apostle Paul says, to hurt someone else, to harm their faith, to cause them consternation. For instance, in our church, we have people who are Republicans, and we have people who are Democrats. My guess is we have people who are Republicans who believe that everybody that's a Democrat is an idiot. My guess is we probably have Democrats in the room who are thinking the world is going to end if you don't vote the Republican straight out of office on Tuesday. Bitterly, bitterly divided. We have people who send their kids to Christian schools, and we have people who would never do that in a million years. We have people who love duck donuts. And we have people who love Susie Joe Donuts. We have people in our church who are Steelers fans. And we have people in our church who knows what it feels like to win a Super Bowl in the last decade. So, sorry, 
I'm so sorry. So sorry. We love you. We, we love you. We just don't love your team. So anyway, the Apostle Paul says the thing is we can never let things like this divide us, ever. Division is the work of Satan in a local church. The Apostle Paul says, listen, if my friend that I'm eating with has a problem with food sacrifice from idol, I will never do it in front of that person because I never want to be in a position to cause a division in our church. Now, Paul warns that for people who have who don't have a problem with eating food sacrificed to idols, his warning is, however, don't let that become a slippery slope. Because what starts with eating meat sacrificed to idols could turn into there's nothing wrong with idol worship. And then it's, there's no big deal with actually walking into a pagan temple. If it's, if it's really not a deity, what would be the problem if I actually walk into the temple itself? And pretty soon what was simply, I don't have a problem eating meat sacrificed to idols, becomes, oh my gosh, I never dreamed I would cheat on my wife with a temple prostitute. And we see this all the time. Just drinks after work turning into something else. Being friendly at work turning into an attraction with someone who's definitely off limits. Being aggressive with tax deductions, turning into full-blown tax evasion. Needing to talk about and process something that happened, turning into full-blown gossip and slander. And so the Apostle Paul, at the beginning of chapter 10, gives some very specific examples of people who started out with a position that was of Christian liberty, and then it turned into a slippery slope where it went into outright sin. They used their freedom that led them directly into sin. And so the immediate context where the verse we're looking at occurred says this. So, if those of you who have no problem eating food that's sacrificed to idols, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so what Paul's trying to say through this verse is that when you're tempted to sin, there's always going to be a way to avoid it. Paul's saying, I do not want to have somebody writing me a letter about some sob story about how they had no problem eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. They turn around and they have sex with a temple prostitute and they're telling the apostle Paul, oh, the temptation is too big. And Paul says, bull, there is never going to be a temptation that is going to come at you that you're not going to be able to stand up against it. That is a promise from God. There is no temptation that will ever come at you as a Christian where you're not going to be able to say no. So what about this God will not give you things that I can't handle? What's the Bible say about that? Will God give me things I can't handle? The answer is an unequivocal yes. Yes, he will. 
God will give you things you cannot handle. For starters, you will die. That's a big one. You're going to die. You might be killed as a martyr for your faith. That's another one. Every single person that answered the call to follow Jesus, that became one of his apostles, they all died. And somehow we're going to turn Christianity into this insurance slip that I come out of the waters of baptism and glad that's covered now. Nothing's going to come after me. Nothing's going to occur in my life that I can't handle. You might suffer unspeakable heartache just like my friend with her child. Can I give you a better verse to share with people who are hurting instead of 1 Corinthians 10.13? It comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying the most encouraging thing I want you to know is not that I'm giving you an insurance against going through difficult times. I'm never going to tell you that. But what I am going to promise you is that there will never be a situation that you're going to go through where I'm literally not walking right beside you saying you can do this. I'm with you even if you're being led to be killed. God will sometimes give you more than you can handle. Louis Weber was one of my favorite preaching professors at Kentucky Christian University, friend and mentor to me. When I couldn't speak a lick, I went to his preaching class, which was pretty intimidating. You write a sermon, you stand up and give it, and then all of the people here in the class sit there with a notebook, and they take notes, and then afterwards, as you're standing there, they tell you all of the positive things and all of the negative things. It is it is just, it's a, it's a very, very difficult situation. I couldn't speak a lick, but I took that class, and after my first sermon, which was just simply terrible, Louis gave me a note that was folded in half, and he said, here, I want you to read this later. I don't remember what he actually said in that note, but I do remember one line. I don't know what you're planning to do with your life, Brian, but if I were God... I would call you to a lifetime of pulpit ministry. I think you're gifted to preach. And that meant the world to me. A couple months ago, Louis, Louis passed away. And uh, I never shared this with anyone, but uh, there were times where I, w- I would preach and my phone would start vibrating in my back pocket. And it was Louie. And I'm like, Louie, you know I'm preaching at this time. What's going on? But Louie would call while I was preaching just to simply know that he was praying for me. Louie had this uncanny sense to know what was going on in my life. And um, this, uh, this summer, the day I learned that he passed away, um, it was a... Uh, this is a tough time. And uh, Lisa and I typically go to uh, 
a restaurant we love in Skipback or in Schwenkswell uh, called Moshe's, which is, I think, the best restaurant in this area. And uh, we didn't go there that day because I wanted to try a new Italian restaurant that had low back, back, back outdoor seating. And so we're sitting there, and I said, I want to go somewhere I can't, I'm not going to see anyone because I don't even know if I want to do this thing anymore. I just, I just can't. It's too hard. I just can't. I'm sitting there as I'm slightly man-weeping. Am I the only one that has made that up? Man-weeping where I'm weeping, but you don't know I'm weeping because when you turn around to talk to the waiter, I'm wiping my eyes and that sort of thing. I call it man-weeping. Anyway, so as I'm man-weeping, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Lisa, and, uh, and I said, hey, I, I think I'm going to fly to Louis' funeral. And I said, I don't know, hold on. And I pulled my phone out. And I, I, I played for her the, um, the last thing he ever said when he called me. As I'm sitting in that, sitting in that restaurant, skip back, people are coming in. I start to play that message and I have to get up because I can't stop weeping. And I, I don't know, maybe... Maybe this will mean as much to you as it meant to me the day he left it. Hey, Brian, this is Louie Weber. Uh, Colin, just have, have uh, just a word of encouragement for you. Uh, when Jesus was about to head out uh, and, and go to heaven and uh, remain there for us, he gave us some last instructions, which I thought were pretty cool. And one of them, he said, was, in this life, you will have trouble. In this life, you will have struggle. Depending on which gospel you read, he says it differently. But he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. And so whatever struggle I just, right now, I encourage you, take heart, Brian. Because Jesus overcame the world. And that's good news. Continue to serve him. And I always use the phrase, make the kingdom fatter. Get the kingdom fatter and bring another person into the kingdom today. For it is to this that we were called, you and I. And I bless your spirit of evangelism, and I bless you finding the lost person with eyes uh, that God uses to see lost people, love them into the kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. See you, Brian. Take care, man. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.